You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Heavenly Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me say, first of all, that it is a great joy to be with you here this afternoon. The text that I am basing my meditation on comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And what I want to do by means of it is to locate us in the events that unfold between Good Friday and Easter morning. Here comes the text. It's from chapter 15 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, beginning at verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild wild beasts at Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that it will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body he has determined. And to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. This is the word of the Lord. There is an ancient myth about a Sibyl, a pagan prophetess who resided at Cume near Naples. In response to Sibyl's wish, the god Apollo granted her immortality. But it turned out to be an immortality deprived of eternal youth. Over a thousand years or so, Sybil's body progressively withered and shriveled, so much so that in the end, she had to be kept in a jar. Some local boys, the story goes, taunted her one day as she hung in her jar. What do you wish for now, Sybil? They jeered. She answered, I wish to die. The myth is worth recalling, not because the story itself is true, but because it points to an interesting truth, something counterintuitive and yet worth considering. Life need not always be an unqualified good, and death may actually appear as a kind of salvation. It is not only 
that Sybil's body became shriveled and frail, itself a mocking witness to the loss of agility and youth. It is rather that her life had nothing going for it. She seemed to have outlived all that she once lived for, and beyond that there seemed to be no purpose to her life. Her life had turned into a living death. It is this sort of fear, fear of the ultimate futility of life, that the Apostle Paul faced among the Corinthians. Some in Corinth, it seems, had little use for the resurrection, for life after death or for eternal life. And they had even less use for a bodily resurrection. And they were perhaps right when it came to life as they knew it, life as they experienced it, life as they saw it all around them, life as they saw it plainly manifested even in the death of the Christ. It was the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes who many centuries later described the life of man as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. If human life is indeed solitary, poor, nasty, and brutish, then the fact that it's also short must seem like a relief. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing to quote another English man of letters. This, in a nutshell, is what some in Corinth saw as an inescapable aspect of human life, its very essence. It was no secret to them. What they saw was a life of relentless judgment. Humans entrenching themselves in prejudice and given to hasty conclusions, plain indifferent, or even merciless when it came to others, yet more than happy with their own ignorance and downright unwilling to learn. Tribalism may be a word that has recently trended up as a descriptor of our reality, but in Corinth the two were the slaves and the free the Greeks and the barbarians, the citizens of Rome and those without rights. There were the men and the women, the wealthy and the have-nots, the fair-skinned and those of a darker complexion, those who have made it in the great city and those who were its dirty underbelly. The Christian congregation in Corinth was no exception. It was likewise riven by glaring fault lines. It had its rich and it had its poor, its ordinary Christ followers and those who thought themselves uniquely gifted with the Spirit of God. The admirables and the deplorables and disposables, within and all the more so without. And then all of them, without exception, looked down on as backwater provincials by those who came from Rome. All of those distinctions 
were viewed as intractable because they were determined and upheld with an iron fist by both nature and fate and, yes, even by God himself. So it was just easier to accept that they were all hopelessly true. It was convenient. Even Paul's message about the crucified Christ seemed to confirm it all. God's anointed, though he was, he was yet another victim of petty jealousies, of the ever-going rivalry, of putting the worst construction, of self-serving lawlessness, of a mob mentality, and of an overreach of power. It's no wonder that in a world like that, what matters the most is survival, making it, even if it requires finger-pointing and shifting the blame, even if it means writing others off as collateral damage. It makes sense that you should justify yourself and get yourself off the hook whenever and wherever. For how far ahead you are is determined only by how many people you've managed to outrun and leave behind. Vying for favor, for clout, for sheer power. Competing for goods you may not even want, but since others want them, well, you know the drill, the treadmill, the rat race. Now, while all this may seem exciting when you're only just joining the fray, you're only kidding yourself if you, if you believe that you will become irreplaceable, that you will stay ahead forever. What a life. No wonder that to some, death appeared to be freedom, just as it still appears to many today who cannot keep up, who cannot take it anymore and end up taking their own lives. There are two responses that we as human beings have been able to muster up when we don't quite wish to go with the flow, when we refuse the world's craziness and breakneck speed and yet must somehow make peace with it. The first is to live in the moment. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Captures the attitude perfectly. Make the most of what the world is throwing your way right now and do it now, for tomorrow it may all be your undoing. Tomorrow you may meet your end. So ignore tomorrow. Ignore the world's ways by looking no further than the moment, a condensed moment of pleasure Enjoyment, surfeit, and oblivion. Today, we also call it shopping or mind-numbing scrolling. The other response, the other human response, has more of a protest within it. Face up to the brutishness of life. Don't avoid it. Look to death as your own most possibility. 
a salvation of sorts, and in the time given, make the most of your life by being better than life as it surrounds you. Live up to humanity's higher calling. Don't shirk it. Instead of eating and drinking yourself into a stupor, instead of amusing yourself to death, instead of shopping yourself into a comfortable numbness or tranquilized floating in a virtual net without end, instead of all that, courageously take it all in. Take the world as it is and be better. Be resolutely better than it all. Now, for the Apostle Paul, there is another way which he wishes urgently to convey to the Corinthians. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? Mark Paul's words. He says he too faces death. But he faces it with no mere human hopes, not with the hope of momentary oblivion or a courage that makes little difference in the end. Paul insists he faces death in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Life as we know it, as we ourselves perpetuated, to be sure manifested itself even in Jesus. At the cross, life's dark nature came to light and became crystal clear. Without mincing words, Jesus was a victim of a bloodthirsty mob. He was a victim of Pilate's staggeringly naive belief that sacrificing Jesus was going to put an end to the unrest. And he was a victim of the high priest's delusion that it, was, it is surely better for this man to die than for the people of Israel to perish, as if the salvation of the tribe could be assured by human sacrifice, by writing this or that person off as collateral damage. Without mincing words and with all the honesty we can muster, what took place on Good Friday was a lynching and a judicial murder and injustice galore. We humans always save ourselves at others' expense. A necessary cost, you might say. Yes, Jesus was a victim of all that. But what played itself out in Jesus was not just the inescapable ways of the world. This is what Paul wants to emphasize so urgently. This is what he wants to scream out from the rooftops. What played itself out in the events of Jesus' passion was, above all, God's judgment on our world, on our ways, on our relationships. God's judgment on our entire life as we live it ourselves and as we make others live it. 
God allowed the world's worldliness to play itself out in all its self-serving brutality and towering delusion. But, and this is crucial, he allowed it all to play itself out in the passion of his own beloved son so that he might judge it and overcome it for us all. It was Jesus, not us, who was delivered into the hands of sinners, delivered up to our ways so that we who meet them out with abandon would no longer have to be so delivered. They were all judged in him so that another judgment could be announced to us, sinners though we are. This is exactly why the resurrection is so crucial for Paul and crucial for us Christians. This is why there can be no Christianity without Christ's resurrection. For the resurrection is God's judgment upon all of our judgments, those haltingly good and those downright sinister. The resurrection is God's judgment that sets all of ours aside as irrelevant. They are no longer inevitable. They have no lasting significance. They won't stand. They don't matter. The resurrection, to put it more precisely, is God's verdict of life where we meted out death. It is a display of God's faithfulness where we presume to save the people, the tribe, our own kind, our ilk, our ways. It is the redemption of life, all life, and all its hellish ways. It is life's recreation and renewal. For if God can make children of Abraham out of stones, he can surely make them out of inveterate sinners, always at the ready to devour each other. The resurrection, in short, is God's determined gift of life, even life eternal. God gives this gift in face of our own incompetent but deadly judgments, in face of our strategies of falling into oblivion or resorting to futile courage. He gives it freely and persistently in face of all our hubris and self-seeking. And through the risen Christ, he declares he simply will not have it any other way than his own way, the way of life. In light of Christ's resurrection, the ways of the world are no longer inescapable a foregone conclusion to be met with courage or resignation. We are, we truly are, only what God makes of us. We are, we truly are, only what God makes of us. Nothing else matters. But wait, there is more. 
since in the resurrection God declares the renewal of all creation. The resurrection is a bodily one, a renewed body for each and everyone. And this is good news. To poor Sybil, life surely seemed like a life sentence. And her shriveling body was a constant reminder of life as a sentence without parole. Death had to seem like a way out, a salvation of sorts. But thank God, we are faced with the renewal of life, of all life's ways and relationships. And those, well, those can only be experienced lived out, enjoyed in a body, a new body. So in the resurrection, we are shown not only the renewal of the world, but we are also promised new bodies to live into it and to enjoy it. Death doesn't need to save us when God himself is the Savior. And when God himself is the Savior, There's only life, life abundant, to be enjoyed. And he promises we'll all just love it. Love all of it, soul and body. Amen. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.